You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Amen. Thank you, brother. If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. If you want to uh, bless one of your pastors, this is the way you can do it right here. Where's uh, Brent and Samantha at? Where are y'all in here? They just walked out. All right, well, at least they gave me a Cosmic Brownie. Last week, I uh, I talked about how Cosmic Brownie is one of my favorite snack foods, and they brought it for me, so that's awesome. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are going to be this morning as we continue in our series, The Real Jesus. And what we're going to discover today is the real Jesus is bringing sexy back. And what I mean by that is he is introducing us to the real, true meaning of biblical sexuality. Uh, Jesus is not silent. On sexuality. Um, he is not. And he's going to be very clear and very direct with us today. For those of you that usually get a good nap during this service, I think you will stay awake today, I believe, um, as we look at this. I've over and over this morning, Megan's heard me singing that old salt and pepper song of Let's Talk About Sex. And I was being reminded of, 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 of God talked about sex long before anybody else has talked about sex. So we're going to redeem it. We're going to look at it. I think it's going to be. Uh, hopefully a good time for us, very thought-provoking and encouraging as well. So look with me, Matthew chapter 5, this is the real Jesus speaking, it's in red letters, so we know it's his words. He says in here, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, you can look with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray for me one more time as I pray for you? Father, we just come to you now and we recognize that these words are just as powerful as if you were standing here speaking them yourself. It's active and it's living. Um, but it's just words on a page, Holy Spirit, if you're not moving through this. And so we need you to do now what only you can do for the good of the people that are here and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Probably one of the uh, scariest moments of my life was when I was in the ninth grade and my brother almost died. A true story. Um, we, had, we found out later that actually he had had a seizure and he was in the bathtub and it went underwater and taken in a bunch of water. And... Um, uh, it, he was lifeless. And my, and my mom, as you can imagine, it was a Friday morning. She was getting ready for work, and, and she was hysterical. And so she comes rushing into my room, and she says, Grant's not breathing. He's not breathing. He's in the bathroom. And so, you know, I jump up out of bed, and I run into the bathroom, and there is my brother, who is purple and blue and absolutely lifeless. And, and I did in that moment what anybody would do whenever you see someone you love in danger, is I, I begin to do everything I could to try to bring him back to life. And so I begin to beat on his chest and breathe into his mouth and pound on his chest and, and breathe into his mouth. And over and over, I did these things just desperately, you know, hollering at him, wake up, wake up. And I continue CPR. And eventually, he sets up and he, and, he, and he spat up some water and he begins to breathe, which was a great relief to me and my mom. And then, of course, he realizes he's naked and he's in the bathtub. And he's like, what are you doing in here? Uh, I was like, I just saved your life, which I still remind him of often whenever I wanted to do something for me. I'm like, you owe me like your life. I did in that moment what any of us would have done. But rewind that scenario. What, what, what if 
in that moment, my mom would have rushed into the room and she would have said, Jared, your brother's not breathing. Grant's not breathing. Imagine what if I would have responded by saying, woman, I've got 15 more minutes of sleep. It's 7 o'clock. I've got more time. You figure it out. All right, what, what if I just would have said, that's his problem. That's not my problem. I'm doing fine. Or, or well, good luck to him. I hope that he figures it out. You would say, Jared, that would make you probably one of the most heartless individuals on the planet. Why? Because we all know that if we see a brother, if we see someone who is in danger, right? If we do nothing about it, there's no love in our heart. If we love somebody and we see them in trouble, we want to do whatever it takes to keep them from being destroyed. And I share that with you because these seem like some really harsh words today, don't they, from Jesus? And what we need to be reminded of is the real Jesus loves you. He is crazy about you. And he's talking in this passage and he's saying, there's a whole slew of you who are in trouble because you're tied into sexual morality. And if you don't step away from this, it is going to destroy your life. And so this passage, this passage these harsh words, they are here, not because Jesus wants to hurt you, but because he wants to help you. Not because he wants to tear you down, but he wants to build you up and give you the life you were created to experience. And I get it. Right? Some of you are like, Jared, come on. It's 2014. Right? There should be sexual freedom at this point. I mean, it's the Bible. It was written thousands of years ago. This is kind of old school, isn't it? Shouldn't we be able to just have sex, right, with whoever we want, express our sexual freedom? Right? I mean, do we, do we have to really follow what Jesus is saying here? Sex within marriage? Come on. What is marriage even? I mean, you know, and some of us, we look and we say, man, I, my, my friends are all engaged in sexual activity and they seem to be doing all right. I mean, I've actually even engaged in it myself and it doesn't seem like it's been that big of a deal. But I want to remind you of what the book of Proverbs says, that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Jesus would say that broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Hollywood is going to give you a broad path. Fifty Shades of Grey and whatever other book that I call chick porn is going to give you a path to destruction. Jesus stands on the narrow path that few of your friends will stand on. That nobody in Hollywood will celebrate. But he says, if you will walk this path, you will experience deep life. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And that's what this passage is about. It's about us experiencing the life God has created for us to experience. Now, let me be very clear before we dive into this passage. Jesus is not condemning sex. We actually are all created to be sexual creatures. We should not be ashamed of sex. God has created us as sexual beings. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, before sin ever entered the picture, how did God create people? He created a male with male parts, and He created a female with female parts. Right? Like God did not turn his back, and while he had his back turned, Satan put a penis on Adam, and God turned around and was like, Oh my God, what, what happened here? How did this get here? It didn't surprise God. He, he created men that way, and he created females with, with female parts, right? And he created them what, with clothes on? No, he created them naked, and they were unashamed. And, and while they were naked, God brings a very naked Eve to a very naked Adam. And what does Adam do? He actually breaks out in the very first R&B song ever written. I mean, like literally, it's recorded in the scripture. He begins to sing a song of praise because he is so blown away by the nakedness, by the physical beauty of Eve. Things are as it should be. 
It's amazing. God created sexuality. When he brings Adam and Eve together, he says, I want to bring you together in this holy matrimony. I want you to be married. So God acts as the first father to the first bride. And when he brings them together, what's the first command he gives them? To go be fruitful and multiply. To have kids. To have sex. God creates sexuality. But now here's the deal. Some of us, because of sin, or maybe because of the way some of us are raised, we think we shouldn't even think about sex. We, we think we certainly shouldn't talk about sex, at least not in a, a church setting. But listen, I will stand before God someday, and you know what I will be called to do as a pastor and what I'll give an account for? I'm called to talk about the things God talks about. And God talks about sex. And so therefore, I'm called to talk about sex. And if you say, well, where's God talking about sex at? Well, all over the Bible. I could open up the Song of Solomon right now, and I could read it, and within the first chapter, I could have many of you blushing with the language the sexually, highly sexually charged language that comes out of Song of Solomon, a book that is inspired by God. And kind of a more G-rated version of some of Solomon's writings in Proverbs 5.19, and this really is G-rated compared to Song of Solomon. Solomon says to husbands, May your wife's breast satisfy you always, and may you be intoxicated with her love. If you look up that word breast in the Hebrew, you know what it means? Breast. <laughs> Any way you want to parse this verse, it is what it is. There's no getting around it. God wants men to delight in the breast that their wife have. God is pro-sex. He is. And therefore, as your pastor, I am pro-sex. <laughs> yeah. Within the boundaries of marriage. God loves sex, which is one of the reasons why I love God, because I love sex, and therefore, like, if you love sex, think about it. God created sex, so shouldn't we love God even more than the fact that he's given us sex? Right? It's amazing. Now, here's the problem, is you don't have to get very far, and Adam and Eve screw it up for all of us, don't they? They're naked and they're unashamed, and everything is beautiful and rhythmic and as it should be, but what happens? They begin to believe a lie about God rather than believing the truth about God. They believe that God doesn't know what's best. They believe God is holding back on them, and so they sin. And now everything in the world is fractured and corrupted, including our sexuality. So here's what that means. All of us are born sinners. We've talked about that over and over again. Therefore, listen carefully, all of us, every single one of us in here are also born sexual sinners. We're all born sexual sinners. Jared Pickney is a sexual sinner. Now, I want to be clear. I've never once committed physical adultery on my wife. I'm not saying I'm above that. By the grace of God, I have not. But what I can't say today is that I've never committed adultery on her in my heart. Actually, the reality is I've committed adultery on my wife and my heart more times than I can count. I am a sexual sinner. And this is the weight of the passage that we're getting at today because Jesus is talking to some of us who might be Pharisees in here and think, man, I'm so good. I've never physically cheated on my wife. I mean, look at me. And Jesus says, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be too proud of yourself because he says, actually, actually, if you've ever even had lust in your heart towards someone else, you are guilty of physical adultery in the eyes of God. 
It's just as dangerous and deadly. All of us in here are sexual sinners. And do you see what, what Jesus is trying to do to us already? He's trying to crush us under the weight of moralism that says, I can be good enough for God. Do you remember back in verse 20 of his Sermon on the Mount? What does he say? He's talking to a group of people who think that, that maybe, right, you have to earn your way to God by the things you do outwardly. And Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know the point of that verse is not Jesus saying, hey, you need to out-Pharisee the Pharisees if you're going to get into heaven. He's not saying you need to be more moralistic than the most moralistic people in the world. Here's what Jesus is trying to get at in that verse. is Look, you're all in trouble. You're in big trouble because you can't be good enough for God. You can't be righteous enough. You can't impress God by your outward deeds. But he doesn't want to leave us in that trouble. Because what does Jesus even kick off his whole sermon with in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know I'm a mess. Blessed are those who know I'm jacked up. Blessed are those who know I don't impress God. He wants to show you that you're in trouble and in your trouble drive you to your need for a savior. What Jesus is trying to get at in this sermon is you are more jacked up than you ever thought possible. But, the good news is that you're more loved than you ever dreamed. And if you will just take your weakness and you will take your sin, including your sexual sins, to Jesus and you will confess them to him and trust in his righteousness, she says, he says, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. You'll have the life you've been longing for. Now, here's some great news. Because we are all sexual sinners, I know that there are some of you in here who are, you have committed committed sexual acts that you are so ashamed of that you would never even mention probably to your spouse, probably to your best friend. There are some of you in here who still carries guilt and shame over those things. And there might even be some of you in here who believes that because of these sexual sins, that, that, that your sins are so vast and so big, they're bigger than your Savior. And I want to tell you some good news this morning. I'm glad you're here because I want to tell you right now, this Bible says that your Savior is way bigger than your sins. He is way bigger than your sins. In fact, what I would even go, I would go a step further and I would even say this. For those of you in here who have committed some, some terrible sexual sins, listen, can I tell you something? Jesus actually has a place in his heart for sexual sinners. That's what we discover in this passage. Jesus has a place in his heart for sexual sinners. He doesn't shun the sexual sinners, but he actually invites them to him. To experience forgiveness, to experience healing, to experience true satisfaction. And I want to say something, and I debated on if I should say this or not, but I think it's important because it's a, it's a topic that it's, everyone's familiar with in our, in our city right now. Everyone's probably aware of, of the doctor that's being accused of the five counts of voyeurism in our city. And I'm not here to say if he's guilty or innocent. I have no idea. I'm not a detective. I, I, the, the court will decide that. But let's just assume that they end up saying in the end that, yeah, he's guilty. Okay? Should we act like that what he did is not a sin? No. Should we act like it's not a terrible thing? No. Should we act like those women were not exploited and violated? No, we should not. But listen, we need to be very careful. Very careful not to look down on someone because of an outward thing that they've done and think, ooh, I would never do something like that. Oh, I mean, you hear about, blah, 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 blah. it's a prayer request, blah, 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 blah. right? 
Did Jesus come to bring life for that man? Absolutely he did. Does Jesus love that man? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. I'm reminded of Mark chapter 5. Do you remember the town creep in Mark chapter 5? The man that ran around naked. And people began to chain him up because they didn't want him to harm other people and freak other people out. The pervert, right? What does Jesus do when he walks on the scene in Mark chapter 5? When he sees this man, what does he do? Ooh, that's disgusting. All right, everybody keep moving. Come on, like everybody, let's get away from the the pervert. Let's get away from the creepy guy in town. Now, what does Jesus do in Mark 5? Anybody remember? He walks up to the man, he touches him, and within minutes, the man is clothed in his right mind and praising Jesus. It's incredible. Jesus is big enough to handle any sinner, no matter who you are or what you have done. And if you are here this morning and you say, ah, I'm not a sexual sinner. Oh, I don't have lust in my heart. Listen carefully. Jesus has nothing to say to you. Jesus has nothing to say to you. But if you are here and you are like me and say, I still struggle with lust. I still struggle with sexual sin. I still have that in my heart. Jesus says, I've got some good news for you. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for those who are sick and know they need a physician. Mark 2, 17, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. I came for the sinner. What great news today that Jesus has come for those of us that are sexual sinners. He wants to give us life today. And, and how does he begin? What does he point us to when it comes to the sexual morality? Look again in verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus did not come to compete with the law. He came to complete the law. He doesn't stand in opposition to the Ten Commandments. What he's wanting to do in this sermon is simply show us what God meant when he gave us the Ten Commandments. Now, listen, the scribes and Pharisees thought this. As long as I don't cheat on my wife, I'm all right. I'm a good dude. And Jesus says, no, you've missed the point of the Ten Commandments. Actually, listen, God cares more about what happens on the inside than he does the outside. God's looking at your heart. He's looking at the motivation behind why you do what you are doing. And what Jesus says here, if you've ever even looked at a woman or a man lustfully and had fantasies about them in a sexual way, in a way that's only meant for your spouse, then you're just as guilty as those who have committed physical adultery. And you're in a dangerous place. Now, here's the question we should all be asking. I mean, if you're a thinker, you should be asking this. Why does God care if we have sex outside of marriage? I mean, come on. Why does he care? So you say, well, it's a commandment. Okay, well, why is it a commandment? God doesn't just give us commandments for the sake of commandments. He gives us commandments to protect us, right? He gives us commandments to lead us into life. So, Why does having sex outside of marriage actually keep us from experiencing the life that God's created us to experience? Well, here's how. Most relationships in our culture, I'd say probably 98.9% of them, are built on what? Consumerism. They're built on consumerism. And what does a consumeristic relationship look like? And maybe this marks some of your marriages. Here's what a consumeristic relationship looks like. It just to me or I'm out of here. Serve me or I'm gone, and I'll go find somebody that will serve me better than you can. That's a consumeristic relationship. 
That's not what marriage is meant to be. Marriage is not meant to be a consumeristic relationship. Rather, marriage is meant to be a covenantal relationship. And what's the difference between consumerism and a covenant relationship? A covenant relationship, unlike consumerism, it does not say adjust to me or I'm out, but here's what a covenantal relationship says. I will adjust to you because I promised I would. I will be here for you and I will serve you even if you gain 500 pounds, even if you go crazy. I'm here, and I'm going to commit to you because I made that covenant before God. And if you live in that reality, if that's the way your marriage is, think about what you get. Think about what you get in that relationship as opposed to a consumeristic relationship. First off, a marriage offers you, a covenantal relationship offers you security. Doesn't it offer you security? This person's never going to leave me. He really believes, or she believes, till death do us part. A marriage not only offers us security, it offers us a place where our feelings grow and, and blossom into something much deeper than they could in a consumeristic relationship. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, for those of you that are parents, think about it. Uh, I mean, what can your kid do whenever your kid's first born? Nothing but keep you awake and poop in his pants or her pants. And for those of you that have raised kids, you know that your investment in your children will always be greater than what your children can invest in you. Correct? You invest like crazy in your kids. But let me ask you a question. Though it's an absolutely selfless, a selfless love on your part, when your kids don't love you well, don't you still love your kids? Wouldn't you still die for your kids? Right? Why? Because that is a covenantal type love. And it's the same way in marriage. Whenever we love with that type of love, when we say, I'm here and I'm going to serve you, even whenever you're making messes, even in your junk, even whenever you don't love me well back, it actually creates feelings that are deeper and more intimate than a consumeristic relationship can ever give you. The third thing that marriage does is this, is marriage, a covenant relationship, gives you freedom. How does it give you freedom? Because what's a consumeristic relationship all about? It's all about performance. It's all about, I've got to be really good for this person, and if I don't look good, I don't perform really well, they're going to leave me. In fact, a lot of times we have to wear a mask, don't we? Because if they really knew who I really was, they might check out. But how does marriage create freedom? You can take the mask off. And you can say, this is me and my flaws and all of my mess. And you can trust that person is going to stay there with you. So marriage is about commitment that offers security and atmosphere for feelings to grow and freedom. Now here's where we're going to get to the sexual part, okay? In light of all of that, of what marriage offers you, Here's what you've got to understand about sexuality according to the Bible. Sex is about far more than just making babies. Sex is about far more than just physical gratification. But sex, when we understand what marriage is really all about, sex is actually a commitment or a symbol of the commitment that we have made to one another before God. Sex is not primarily or just simply about procreation. If sex was just about having babies and God wants us to have sex within marriage, that makes no sense. I mean, why did God create marriage? If the point is just to fill the earth with more people, why get married? Why can't we just be like other animals that just have sex and, and, and fill the earth? Why did God say, no, I want you to have sex within marriage? Why? Because here's what's going on. When you have sex with your spouse, here's what you're saying and what God wants you to be saying is I am doing with my body what I've already done for you with my entire life. 
I'm giving you all of my body as a symbol of the fact that I've already devoted my entire life to you. Sex is actually is actually a reminder of the covenantal love and the commitment that we have for one another. Sex is not simply about a feeling. It's actually about our faith. Due to technical difficulties with our audio recorder, the second half of the sermon was recorded outside the Sunday gathering. We hope you enjoy the second half of this podcast. In Ephesians 5, we find the longest passage in all of the Bible on marriage. And what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 is the whole point of marriage is this, is marriage is meant to be a picture to the world of God's covenantal love for his people. And so, in other words, marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. So when you understand sex in light of marriage and the purpose of marriage, what you understand about sex is this. It's about way more than just having a physical need met. It's about way more than just procreation. But sex, when we engage in it with our spouse, is actually one way that we preach the gospel to our spouse. Right? That's not something you're going to hear Katy Perry sing about in a song. All right? Bruno Mars isn't going to tell you that's what sex is about. You're not going to read about that probably in some sort of mainstream book at Barnes & Noble. But the truth is, sex is something that God has given us to remind our spouse of the ultimate romance. It's meant to to be a reminder to our spouse that just as Jesus came and died for me before I'd ever done anything for him, he laid his entire life down for me so that I can now lay down my entire life for you. And you see, this is why God hates sex outside of marriage. Because it shows a picture not of a covenant of love, but of a consumeristic love. And we have sex or engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Here's the deal. We're not simply refusing to believe a command. We're refusing to believe the gospel. And by our very actions, we are sending a message contrary to the gospel to the one who we are engaging in sexual acts with. Rather than showing a picture of covenantal love, we're embracing a consumeristic love that says, actually, you know what? Life is really all about me getting what I want and when I want it. And this is why Jesus right, speaks against the lust of the heart. And he says that, that lust in your heart is just as big as a deal to God as physical adultery. Why? Because what does God really care about more than anything? He cares about your heart. And when you have lust in your heart towards somebody else, what you are saying is actually, I care more about my feelings than God's fame. When your heart is consumed with lust, which actually is going on is your heart is more consumed with greed than it is with God. Now, a lot of times when we think of greed, we think of it uh, in connection to money, right? We think that that whenever we say, okay, that person's greedy, our first thought is, okay, that person must really want to consume more money. They're not content with the amount of money they have. They're always wanting more. And, And what Jesus says in this passage is this is that's the exact same way lust works. In fact, the the word that he uses for lust here is a word that's often connected to greed. And what he's saying is this, is whenever you undress a person with your mind, when you fantasize about them, someone who's, who's not your spouse in a sexual way, when you fantasize about that person, what it reveals is a heart that is discontent. What it reveals is a heart that says, you know what, I want to consume more and more and more for my own personal pleasure. And this is what leads so many people to being addicted to pornography. I mean, lust is a perfect feeder for pornography because what is porn about? Porn is all about consumption. 
Porn is all about my, myself, right? It's all about me getting personal gratification. In fact, porn is such a selfish act. You don't even need another human being to, to have sex, right? You can just have sex with yourself. And, and some of you maybe, I mean, uh, that are listening to this, you say, you know, what? Well, well, pornography, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I, I've been doing porn, you know, looking at porn for a while, and it doesn't. I don't think it affects me really. It doesn't really affect anybody else. But you know what? Every research, even research done outside of the church, says pornography is absolutely devastating, not only to you, but to those around you. When you look at pornography, though, you may not think it's a big deal. What happens is you actually begin to create crushingly unrealistic expectations about what you think a partner should look like and perform like in bed. And on top of that, because you live in a fantasy world where you can just kind of, you know, have sex with whoever you want to in your mind and you can pick what they look like and what they do and when they do it, right? What happens is it actually ends up making you less interested in real human beings that God has called you to be connected to. And when you actually engage in a relationship, when you're consumed with pornography, when you're consumed with lust and feeding that lust, you actually desire less and less to be committed to somebody because of their flaws. You, you actually desire less and less to be committed to somebody and to persevere in the midst of a real relationship. And that's why lust is so dangerous. It doesn't just ruin our lives, but also ruins the lives of those that are around us. Lust is incredibly destructive, and that's why Jesus goes on to say what he says in verse 28. I'm sorry, in verse 29. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the members than your whole body go to hell. In this passage, Jesus is not saying literally... If you struggle with lust, you need to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. And we know he doesn't mean that because where does Jesus say lust comes from? Well, it comes from the heart, right? We see that uh, in other places in the gospel. It says from out of the heart comes sexual immorality and adultery. And so Jesus is not saying here that you need to literally cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, right? He's saying what you need is a heart transformation. But here's the deal. Only God can transform the heart. And so while we're praying for God to transform our heart, here's what he's saying we need to be doing. We need to be doing our part while God is doing his part. We need to be taking extreme measures on our part to ensure that we're not putting ourselves in places that allows us to be tempted and lured and enticed by the lust of our own heart. I don't know what that may look like for some of you, but but it may mean getting rid of your iPhone or your smartphone. For some, it may mean it may mean that, that you have to delete your Facebook account because uh, you can't handle seeing people post pictures uh, from Cancun or wherever it is on there where everyone's in a bathing suit, right? I mean, it just it, it leads you to, to 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 thinking lustful thoughts about those that you see on your Facebook newsfeed. Maybe for some of you, it means getting involved in a fight club, right? In the Book of James, it says that when we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we'll be healed. And for some of you, you need to stop fighting this battle on your own. And I know for some of you, you're saying, wait a minute though, Jerry, this is going to make me uncomfortable. Uh, this isn't going to be something that, that's going to mean I have to sacrifice some freedoms. Yes, absolutely. But that's the point that Jesus is making here. He's saying it's better for you to lose a little freedom now than to lose a greater freedom later. It's better for you to lose a little bit of instant gratification so that you can experience a greater joy later. Uh, in the book, Finally Free, a book that we have on our book table, when you come into the cinema, the author says this, employing radical measures is the path to life, while indulging sin is a path to hell. 
God does not forbid sexual morality because he wants you to be miserable. God forbids it because sexual immorality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and eventually hell. We are to be people, if we want to experience life, that need to take extreme measures in order to experience the life that God has created us to experience. I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, the movie 127 Hours or, or read the book the movie's based off of. Um, I think the book's title is Between a Rock and a Hard Place, but it's a true story about a man named Aaron Ralston that was hiking at the Blue John Canyon in Utah. And while he was hiking, this large boulder actually trapped his arm, um, actually it fell and, and, and pinned his arm between uh, or up against another um, uh, canyon or part of the canyon there. And and, and he was pinned there for not just one night, but two nights, three nights, four nights. And eventually it comes uh, to the fifth night. And he's sitting there and he's he's lost 50 pounds. He's completely dehydrated. And he believes that, that he is going to die. In fact, I mean, he even wrote his name, his birth date, and his death, you know, when he thought he was going to die. And, and because he really believed, like, this was it for him. And so he goes to sleep and he doesn't expect to wake up. But... Um, after sleeping, he eventually he opens his eyes and he realizes he's still alive. And he was actually quite angry that he was still alive. He couldn't believe it. But while he was sitting there, he had this epiphany. And he said, you know what? I realize I can break my arm and I can use a dull knife to cut my arm off and I can free myself that way. Right? That's some epiphany, huh? And, and this is what he does. He actually, true story, breaks his arm and then begins to cut his arm off so that he could be freed from being trapped by this boulder and actually live. And in this interview that I saw, I believe it was on Dateline or, or some other um, news station that interviewed him about this, they asked him, they said, whenever you cut your arm off, after all the pain and everything you'd gone through, whenever you cut your arm off, what was your first thought? And he actually said, it was the happiest moment of my life. It was the happiest moment of my life. You see, though he had lost his arm, losing an arm is worth it whenever you know you get to experience life. And sure enough, he would go on, he would survive, and has accomplished many great things since then. And I share that with you because I think this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, look, you need to take extreme measures. It's worth sacrificing Facebook, or it's worth sacrificing something that that maybe is is just an instant little temporary satisfaction for for the sake of experiencing a deep and true satisfaction that is found in the life that Christ has called you to. Maybe some of you, you're listening to this and you're thinking, Jared, I've tried everything. I really have, and I continue to fail. I don't even know what else to do. I'm tired of failing. I don't know what else to try. And I just want to encourage you, if you're listening to this and, and, and this is you and you're trying to take radical measures and you continue to fall over and over again, here's what happens. Every time that you look at someone with lust in your heart, I want you to take a look at Jesus. For every time that, that, that you look at someone with lust in your heart, look to Jesus and confess your sin to Him and ask Him through the power of His Spirit to help you believe that He is the only one that can give you the true satisfaction that you're looking for. Do you remember the story about the woman at the well that Jesus went and spoke with? It was such an interesting story we read in Scripture where there's a woman at the well. She's known as the whore in in the city that she lives in. And Jesus actually approaches this woman and he says to her, you know, how would you like to have some water that when you drink it, you'll never thirst again? He's saying to her, look, I know that you're looking for something, you're longing for something, and I've got something that I can give you that will meet all the longings of your heart. And the woman says, hey, where can I find this this water, right? Give me some of this water. 
And Jesus responds in a really bizarre way. He says to me, bring your husband to me. And how does the woman respond to him? She says, sir, I'm not married. And he says, no, you're right. You've been married five times before, and the man that you're living with now is actually not even your husband. Why in the world is Jesus talking about this woman's messed up sex life? Why? Because here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, you're looking for satisfaction in men. You're trying to find in the arms of men the deep love and the freedom and the security that only I can give to you. And that's the same thing that Jesus is wanting to say to you and to me today. For those of us that are looking for satisfaction in men or in women, believing they will meet the longings of our heart, he says to us, they will not fill the gap. They will not satisfy you fully. So stop looking to them for ultimate satisfaction and look to me and in me you will find not only salvation for your souls but the satisfaction that you have been longing for. If you're listening to this and and you find yourself feeling guilty or, or filled with shame over any sexual sins you've committed, I want to remind you of the power of the gospel that reminds us that with every look at pornography or lustful gawking for every sexual sin we've ever committed, it's all been paid for by Jesus in his death for sinners. My prayer is that as you fix your eyes on Jesus, greed will be replaced with gratitude. And for those of you that maybe have felt, found yourself feeling hopeless, that maybe you'll always be consumed with lust, I want to encourage you to continue to look to Christ and be reminded that his grace to change you is stronger than sin's power to destroy you.